open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 14, I'll be reading verses 1 of chapter 14 through chapter 15 and verse 4. Our focus this morning will be on 14, 1 through 22. The word of Yahweh that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns, they find no water, they return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Yahweh, for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you, O you hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of us. And we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus says Yahweh concerning this people. They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore Yahweh does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Yahweh said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they Offer burnt offering and grain offering. I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And then I said, Oh, Lord Yahweh, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Yahweh said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them. Nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, though I did not send them, and who say sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out into, in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword with none to bury them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. For I will pour out their evil upon them. You shall say to them this word, Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound, with a very grievous blow. If I go out into the field, behold those pierced by the sword. And if I enter the city, behold the diseases of famine. For both prophet and priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. 
Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there's no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Yahweh, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember, and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can give the... Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not He, O Yahweh, our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Then Yahweh said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says Yahweh. Those who are for pestilence to pestilence. Those who are for the sword to the sword. And those who are for famine to famine. And those who are for captivity to captivity. I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares Yahweh. The sword to kill, the dogs to tear, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, For those who are not your people, grant repentance this morning. Salvation is of the Lord. You must save and you alone. Apart from you, even our efforts at repentance are sinful, motivated with more concern for self than sin against you. And so, Father, though our words might sound perfect and pleasant, our hearts might be far from you. And so in mercy, we pray that you would grant repentance and faith to the lost, To the lost who think all is well with their soul. To the lost who think they could cry out in your name as one of your children, but they are not. And for your people. May we always be zealous. To keep a clear conscience, a tender conscience. To always have a spirit of brokenness and contrition for our sins. And beware lest we grow hard. So bless the preaching of your word now towards that end. In Christ's name, amen. God's wrath may fall suddenly. As in a flood. Or it can accrue 
slowly as in a drought. Whereas a flood may terrify with its sudden fury, a drought slowly eats away at all life and hope. In his Lamentations, chapter 4 and verse 9, Jeremiah would say, Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. Rain is a common grace. You remember Jesus in His Sermon on the Mount, His Discourse on Discipleship, said that His Father makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Paul, whenever he was at Lystra, you remember the people of Lystra mistook him for Hermes and Barnabas for Zeus and He told them that they should turn from such vain things to serve the living God who did not leave Himself without witness for He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good, with food and gladness. Acts 14, 17. Rain is a common grace, but this drought is a special curse. There were a host of curses that Yahweh said would come upon His people for their covenant infidelity. And one of them included drought. Deuteronomy 22. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. Yahweh will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So you remember the way that Jeremiah set up the great evil of Judah as it's unfolded throughout this book is that they've committed two evils. They've forsaken him, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, Jeremiah chapter 2 And it matters not how slow the leak may be in those broken cisterns because now at this point there's no water to be found to even fill a broken cistern. Her eyes are now wet because the land is dry. A word comes to Jeremiah concerning the drought, verse 1. Is this word predictive or is it descriptive? I think it's plain that He's describing something that is upon the people. This is not a drought that's being promised. This is a drought that's present. But nonetheless, as we just read from the law, he told them for their covenant infidelity, this curse would come upon them. So it doesn't matter. This word ultimately is this drought, if you will, is both predicted and it is present now because of their covenant infidelity. But that this this concerns a drought that is upon them, I think, is substantial in understanding this word that comes to Jeremiah as we go along through this chapter. You'll begin to see some of how that is in the next verse. Her eyes are wet because the ground is dry, verse 2. She mourns, her gates are in languish, the people lament, her cry goes up. As we go along through this chapter, we'll hear her lament. 
And there's some debate over, as we, we read the laments of Judah in this passage, whether or not these are actually Judah's laments, or it's Jeremiah giving poetic expression to her lament. And it's, I think, clearly the latter. But even so, with that being the case, these laments, I believe both of them, Jeremiah's lament that we'll see in this chapter, Judah's lament, both of them are given to Jeremiah from the Lord. So more than they're Judah's words, more than they're Jeremiah's words, they're Yahweh's words. Yahweh is putting Judah's words into Jeremiah's mouth. And they're to convey something of the nature of this drought. Her eyes are wet because the ground is dry. The first clue that you get as to the severity of this drought is in verse 1. And you can't see it in the English. Strictly translated, this is the word that comes to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. And the idea is not that there have been multiple droughts with seasons of rain interspersed between interrupting them. No, the drought is so severe, it's plural, there are droughts upon them. But then four images are put forward that portray something of the severity of the drought. Verses 3 through 6, and the first two concern men. First we see nobles sending out their servants to gather water. And they're confounded and ashamed because they return without any. And second, the farmers are ashamed because the ground is dismayed. Other translations have cracked. The word can be translated cracked or shattered, broken, destroyed. But most often throughout Scripture, the idea of this word is, is to speak in a kind of metaphorical way of, of being shattered inside, dismayed, in terror, panic. And so picture the farmer looking at the ground and the ground is panicked as it were. The farmer walks away ashamed because he cannot do anything. The third and fourth images which use beast are perhaps the most vivid and striking. The doe noted by the ancients for being a good mother forsakes her fawn. There's not enough grass so that she could produce any milk. She abandons it. And then the wild donkey who would traverse the wilderness of Judea, which was pretty much a desert all year round. Conditions are now so severe that an animal made for such an environment pants like a jackal and its eyesight fails because there's no vegetation. This drought impacts everything. The curse falls upon man and beast and land and devastates it all. A duo of commentators remark the country and the city, the distinguished and the mean, the field and the husbandman are thrown into deep mourning and the beast of the field pine away because neither grass nor herb grows. So can you sense something of the devastation of a drought? Floods come suddenly, but droughts build. And on the hills of this drought... It's promised that there is a flood, that boiling pot out of the north to tip over and wash over this already cracked and broken land. Sinner, know this. Outside of Christ, 
however much common grace you might enjoy in God's patience and long-suffering, ultimately your life is really nothing but a prolonged drought building towards a flood of destruction. Every stream of common grace that you enjoy in your life will one day run dry. The elements of your life that you now live that will endure are those aspects of the curse that you're already suffering. And they will build and endure and they will come to a climactic conclusion as you are thrown into the lake of fire that will never be extinguished. And so mourn, lament, cry. And if you do not know how, our text will unfold how to respond to such a word of destruction. In verses 7 through 9, we have Judah's lamentation, her confession, her petition, that it is Judah is made clear by the plural. Though our iniquities testify against us, our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. But again, though the speaker is Judah, the poetry is Jeremiah's. And I think this is coming to Jeremiah in the same way that Jeremiah's own lament comes to him in verse 17. You shall say to them this word, let my eyes run down. You have a lament of Jeremiah in verses 17 through 18, and it's given to Jeremiah by Yahweh. So do these words capture Judah's lament? I believe so. Jeremiah poetically represents the people's own cries. But it's a word that's coming to Jeremiah from Yahweh that speaks to something concerning this drought. And what it says concerning this drought will be made clear as we go along. Judah pleads for God to act, confessing her sin, verse 7. Despite all of her iniquities, she asked that Yahweh act for His name's sake. Remember whenever Yahweh revealed His name to Moses, proclaiming, unfolding what it means, we read, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before Him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the the children and and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so whenever they're asking God to act for His namesake, it doesn't mean act for your renown, but it means act for your namesake as far as who you've revealed your name To be, act for your namesake, your renown, in upholding what you've said your name means. And so it is that we often find David and others pleading just like this. David, for your namesake, O Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 25, 11. And then next, Judah laments that the hope of Israel, Yahweh, Her Savior is distant. He he seems like a disinterested traveler. He's he's not a local. He doesn't have any care for this land. He's just passing through. 
or as a confused man. A, I think the metaphors are meant to be confi- combined. This confused man is the warrior. He's a warrior. He's able to save, but he doesn't save because he's dazed. But in contrast with what she senses, with what she feels in this moment, she proclaims truth. You are in the midst of us. The temple is there. And we are called by your name. And then she says, though, in light of this, do not leave us. You remember in the past, they presumed that just because the temple was there, they wouldn't be destroyed. The false prophets telling them, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. Chapter 7 and verse 4. Now in light of this drought, you see they're not so sure anymore. They know that Yahweh has promised to dwell in the midst of His people, that they bear His name as His bride. But yet they plead, don't leave us. In Jeremiah, through the book so far, we've seen God pleading for His people to plead. Jeremiah chapter 3, Return, faithless Israel, declares Yahweh. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares Yahweh. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against Yahweh your God and have scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares Yahweh. So is that what Israel's doing now in light of this famine? Is Judah now returning to her covenant Lord? Will she find grace? Well, reading those earlier chapters of Jeremiah up to this point helps you to read this one better. Because in light of that word given in chapter 3, we read this, chapter 3, 21 through 22, a voice on the bare heights is heard. The weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten Yahweh their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithful, faithlessness. And she responds, Behold, we come to you, for you are Yahweh our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in Yahweh our God is the salvation of Israel. And so in light of that, he's pled for her to return. She's admitting her guilt, confessing it. We're we're hoping for restoration, but what comes after that? Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. If you return, O Israel, declares Yahweh, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear, as Yahweh lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations shall bless themselves in Him, and in Him shall they glory. Why was Israel not restored? Jeremiah's already given the answer in that chapter. He says that Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. Or as chapter 12 and verse 2 put it, he's near their mouth, but far from their heart. The words sound good. The words sound perfect here. Indeed, this is exactly how we should pray. And it is exactly how we shouldn't pray. This is exactly how you should pray concerning content. Pray upon the basis not of your merit or what you've done, but for the glory of His name because He's revealed Himself to be gracious 
and merciful and long-suffering. Well, this is exactly how you should pray concerning the content of your prayers. And it's exactly how you should not pray concerning the motive of your heart. How do we know? We have to look at Yahweh's response to their words. But know this, it is better to have ignorant words from a true heart than true words from a false heart when praying to God. Better to be one of His immature children speaking in ignorance but sincerity than some astute theologian doing it all centered on your name and not His. Thomas Brooks writes, Cold prayer shall never have any warm answers. God will suit His returns to our requests. Lifeless services shall have lifeless answers. When men are dull, God will be dumb. Concerning His people crying out to Him because of this drought, Yahweh declares that they have loved to wander, verse 10. They have not restrained their feet. You remember in chapter 6, He called them to a crossroads. And He told them to ask for the ancient ways where the path was good and to walk in it because that is the way of life. But instead, what we see following this is they follow after their own hearts. They go their own ways. She wanders from God's law. She wanders from covenant. And for this reason now, He does not accept them. He will remember their iniquities. He will punish their sins. And so it is that verse 11, they don't have a prayer. Jeremiah is commanded, do not pray for the welfare of this people. This is now the third time Jeremiah has been commanded not to pray for them. Not only is their own prayer not heard, Jeremiah is not to pray for them. And so the brazen sky testifies not only that no grace is coming down, but that also for them concerning them, no prayers will ascend up through that sky. Though they fast, He will not hear them. Though they make offerings, He will not accept them. Verse 12. And what does it mean that now it's a famine and you're fasting anyway? Chapter 11, the same themes were present, but the logic is expounded on. 11.14 Therefore do not pray for this people or lift up a cry on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. You don't pray for them because I won't hear their own prayer. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? Remember in chapter 6 and 7, we also see God repudiating their offerings and their sacrifices, that her worship was duplicitous. She, she wasn't returning to Yahweh. She was trying to buy Him off. And so what does it say that they do all these things now? What does it testify concerning their heart? Despite their fast and their offerings, Yahweh will consume them. Not only by famine, he says, but by sword and by pestilence, verse 12. 
And so this statement of, judges, uh, of judgment causes Jeremiah to raise, if not an objection, then a question. Oh, Lord Yahweh, behold, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, you, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. You remember Jeremiah raised the same question earlier. And then it was more like an objection or an accusation even. Chapter 4 and verse 10. Oh, Lord Yahweh, surely you have utterly deceived this people. And Jerusalem saying, it will be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. <coughs> but it's in this book, more than anywhere else, that the false prophets are spoken against. In addition, you have all the true prophets who have preceded Jeremiah that have warned of this judgment. And then finally, passages like Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 9, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, make it clear that false prophets themselves will not only be judged, but they are themselves a judgment on such a people. And so concerning this objection, Yahweh simply states the obvious. The prophets are prophesying lies. Here's the deal about false prophets. They're false. doesn't matter what they say. God did not sin. God did not command. God did not speak to them concerning these words. And so concerning these prophets, all that they say will come upon them and it will come upon the people to whom they prophesy. A world full of lies is no excuse for not believing God's truth. Pulpits filled with wolves are no justification for not hearing the good shepherd's voice and following him. Jeremiah 5.31 says that the prophets prophesy falsely and that the people love to have it so. Yes, the message of false prophets deceives. But it also tickles itching ears that will not endure sound teaching. The market and demand for such lies always precedes their being manufactured. So there's no excuse if Judah had followed God's law, these prophets would have been stoned. If they had followed His law, these prophets would not have had any ground to stand upon anyway because a judgment, which they deny, wouldn't have been coming upon the people. And so now, concerning these prophets, these, these people who have listened to them, they're to be consumed by sword, by famine. And they're to, this is to happen for this reason, verse 16. For, uh, uh, no, yes, verse 16. The people to whom they prophesied shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of sword and famine, with none to bury them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. For... I will pour out their evil upon them. She's being made to taste of her own sin. She has forsaken the fountain of living waters, and hewn for herself broken cisterns, and now she's being made to drink thereof. After speaking 
of that specific sin of hewing out cisterns for themselves, Yahweh goes on to say in Jeremiah chapter 2, Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Here's part of the judgment. Whenever you turn away from Yahweh, part of the judgment is this. You've turned away from Yahweh. In whom is all glory, beauty, life, truth. There's no good apart from Him. No one see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake Yahweh your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares Yahweh God of hosts. The next word from Yahweh, building directly upon these, is striking. It's a, it is a word for Judah, but it's indirect, verse 17. These words are not personally Yahweh's, but they are His. It's a word to the people, but it's also a word for Jeremiah. It's a word for him himself. It's a lament for him. He's been told not to pray for them, but now he's commanded to lament for her. And he's to long. Now are you seeing how, how giving this lament expresses something concerning the severity of the drought? The same way that Judah is giving a lament, is given a lament, and then you see that it's not heard. That's why he's been giving, that's why Jeremiah's receiving these laments. So you can understand something concerning this drought. So the first thing you see is, it is certain. There's no hope of evading it. He will not hear their prayers. He will not hear Jeremiah's. And now you're getting more of a sense for it and you're seeing Jeremiah longs to cry day and night and ceasing tears because of the wound of the virgin daughter of his people. Remember, he, he lamented similar, in a similar way in 821. The wound of the daughter of my people. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. And the wound is pervasive. It's everywhere. Verse 18. If he goes out into the field. Behold those pierced by the sword. But if he goes into the fortified cities where they fled to escape the sword finds those who have been impacted by the famine and drought, the diseases of famine. And why is all this so? Verse 18, because both prophet and priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. Their heads are empty and they want their pockets full. They have no word from Yahweh. They just see opportunity. We've heard the same kind of logic before. <clears throat> Jeremiah 6, 12-14, Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand over the inhabitants of the land, declares Yahweh, for because from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no Peace. And so from the singular, singular lament of Jeremiah, we turn abruptly to the plural lament again of, of Judah. Verse 19, Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there's no healing for us? 
She wants to know, is this ultimately hopeless? Is it altogether that they've been abandoned? (coughs) Looking for peace because of these false prophets, she finds only terror, verse 19. And again, she confesses her sins, verse 20. The sins of her fathers that she's participated in. And in light of this confession, she asks again that Yahweh not spurn her because of His namesake, verse 21. She asks God to remember His covenant, not to break it. If you think, well, they've already broken covenant first. Yes, but in that covenant He promised, Deuteronomy 30, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations to where Yahweh your God has driven you, and return to Yahweh your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He shall gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. Additionally, in contrast to their previous lament, this one has the added element of praise. They call upon God to do this because there's no one like Him. No one else can send rain. Only He can. So they set their hope in Him, whom they've already referred to as the hope of Israel, their Savior, Yahweh their God. But again, you have to ask yourself, what's their motive? Some of you are optimists. You've heard their prayer, and you're hopeful for restoration now. Some of you are pessimists. You're cynical. God's going to kill them all. Who is right? Well, what we should do is be undecided until God has spoken. And God speaks. So for a while, I wrestled whether or not to include 15, 1 through 4 or 15, 1 through 9 as part of this sermon. Here's his response. Yahweh said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight. He hasn't heard their lamentation. He's commanded Jeremiah, don't pray for them. And now he says upon top of this further lament, if Moses or Samuel were interceding for this people, I would not hear them. So why pause at this point after verse 22? Because I believe though 15, 1 through 4 are the initial and immediate answer, I don't think they're the ultimate and final answer to what we see unfolding in this chapter. And that's for this reason. If 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 you read 14 and 15 over and over again, I think you'll see just how linked together the two are. They they're meant to be understood and taken together. And once again we find Yahweh. Holding out hope in 15 and verse 19 when he says, If you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. This is the same language that's been presented in chapter 3 that's being being understood behind everything that's happening here. But here's the catch. 
At that point, Yahweh's speaking to Jeremiah, his prophet, and not to Judah. Yahweh does not hear the cry of the wicked, but he does hear the cry of his children. He does nothing concerning these false prophets but bring judgment, but concerning his true prophet, he hears him. Yes, God's children are weak. They're persecuted. As we'll see in chapter 15, that's why Jeremiah is distraught so. But God will restore, strengthen, deliver, save, and redeem His own. Has God utterly rejected Judah? Has he, does He loathe Zion altogether? Is He going to strike her down so that there is no healing? He does not hear the lamentation of the nation as a whole. But he does hear his prophet. The one that he set apart from the womb as appointed to be a prophet to the nations. What hope is there for us in this? Can any of us aspire to be a Jeremiah? No. But we don't need to. Because our hope is this. The only reason Jeremiah's lamentation was heard or any of our lamentation may be heard is because of the prophet and the priest who spilled his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus prayed, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I've come. To this hour. Father. Glorify. Your. Name. Then a voice from heaven. Came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it. Again. What hour was Jesus speaking of? An hour that he submitted to. In obedience to his father. It was the hour of his crucifixion. The hour in which he would spill the blood of the new covenant. Now, if you would turn to Ezekiel, we'll read a bit of a lengthy passage. It's so beautifully connected. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 38. And listen to how that new covenant is spoken of. Ezekiel 36 and verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says Yahweh God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord Yahweh. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord Yahweh. This also I will let the house of of Israel ask me to do for them. To increase their people like a flock. Like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So that the waste cities shall be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Has he utterly forsaken? He's promised in his new covenant. He will let us ask to increase their people like a flock. You cannot pray well enough to merit grace for heaven. But your Lord can. And He pleads His blood before our Father. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be met with mercy from heaven, not because of you, but because of Him and for His name's sake. This world is doomed to crack and shatter in the flames, but God has not so utterly forsaken His covenant to redeem through the seed of the woman. What will be dried by the flames of judgment will bloom again and flourish brighter and forever. Confess your sins. Turn from them in repentance. Cry out for mercy in the name of Jesus Christ. Cry out for mercy for His name's sake that He might be exalted as the hope of Israel and the Savior of sinners. Set your hope on Him and He alone for there is no other. Let's pray. Father, thank you 
You are Yahweh, long-suffering, patient. Surely your justice will fall. But just as surely, we know because Christ lived, died, and rose, that you have saved a people for yourself, and there is mercy and hope abundant in Christ. And we would plea now, Father, that you would fill your church, increase your flock, For the sake of your name. In the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.